I am noticing that when there's only two people, you have far less time to drink. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get like, and also- <laughs> it's my turn to talk and all of a sudden I'm halfway through a swig. <laughs> I'm just saying. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from the still young, perceptibly hip and obviously lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hello, Ashley. And not Olga this week. No, it sounds like Olga's come down with a case of something Yeah, something really not bad. Good. She is on doctor's orders, not supposed to come to the office. So we really miss her, but yep. we're going to try to soldier on. She just wants to watch the NBA playoffs. I know. <laughs> I know what she's doing. How are you doing, Zach? I'm great. Uh, it's America's birthday. Happy birthday, America. We are turning... 109. We or turned 109, we turned 109 this past on Tuesday. Tuesday. Yes. yes. Which is very exciting. And we don't look a day over <laughs> 102. I stole that joke from Carrie Weber. Oh. She made that earlier. But it's true. It's crazy to think. Isn't it a little bit weird to think that when we were born, America was already like 80 years old? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 78 for me. So if you want to support the work we do. If you want to say good job, America Media, for letting those kids host a podcast. Yes, uh, and let us survive another 109 years. Yes, may Jesuitical continue for 109 <laughs> years more. Uh, you can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash America Media. Yes, that would be very much appreciated. Yes. What's on tap, Zach? So this week we are having a uh, craft brew from Zero Gravity Craft Brewery uh, up in Burlington, Vermont. So we are drinking... Uh, their dry hopped lager beer. Keller. 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 Mm. Yes. So right. let's crack it open. Woo. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Mm. You can really tell the lack of gravity that went into this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and who's our guest? Uh, so this week we're talking with Patrick Blanchfield, who is uh, an associate professor at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, um, who is also in a freelance writer who writes about uh, American violence, uh, mass shootings. Um, and some of the religious language that infiltrates those debates. Uh, so re- that's what we're talking to Patrick about. So yeah, we, we, and we talked to him a couple weeks ago. Um, it was in connection to the mass shooting in Florida, but mm-hmm. unfortunately this is an issue that remains relevant. So it'll, yep. it's a great conversation. But, but first, first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, first, Pope Francis has sent a very strongly worded letter to the bishops in Chile um, where he talks about his pain and shame upon getting the report that his representatives in Chile looking into the sex abuse scandal there have given to him. So there's a report over 2,000 pages um, that goes over the grave abuses that have happened um, to children in that country. And Pope Francis frankly admits his own, quote, serious mistakes in how he dealt with the scandal. Mm-hmm. And he's inviting the entire Chilean hierarchy to meet with him at the Vatican. And also invite he invited the three main accusers of Bishop Juan Barros to meet with him at a different time. Um, but he, as you pointed out, Ashley, this is you know really good to see the Pope admitting his own serious mistakes in dealing uh, with the scandal and he's yeah. and to ask for forgiveness that's an important update that we wanted to bring this week yeah how often do you see a world leader admitting he or she is wrong and asking for forgiveness mm-hmm. it's a good good model for everyone yeah so we just hope <laughs> the, the momentum that seems to be moving continues to go uh, and we'll see what these with the meetings both with the Chilean hierarchy and the uh, survivors yep all right what's next so we finally have a date 
Oscar Romero is getting canonized. It's official. <laughs> uh, of particular note, Archbishop Oscar Romero is getting canonized in Rome this fall during the Synod on the Youth. Yes, and he was the archbishop who was um, assassinated in El Salvador during that country's civil war. Um, and he's always kind of been like a local saint, but his mm-hmm. um, his cause for canonization has been stalled for a number of years Um because of his connections to liberation theology, um, which, you know, kind of got a bad name uh, <laughs> yes, in the 90s. Yes, to say the least. But Pope Francis is, you know, he's lifting him up as a model, not only for the people in El Salvador, but for the entire church by having the canonization in Rome. Right. And we've actually had a, lo- a few people nominate Romero for canonization on our show. Yeah. So uh, I won't say this is, you know take all the credit but <laughs> yeah let alone yeah ashley's trying to ashley's trying to take credit from all those el salvadoran older women praying to romero um but yeah i'm sure it didn't hurt <laughs> no so we will soon have saint oscar romero what's our next story ashley so this is a follow-up uh kind of of something we talked about last week we talked about the potential of a u.s missile strike on syria in response to the use of chemical weapons by the assad regime so since we had that conversation um the u.s along with the uk and france did strike syria we expressed our opposition to those strikes and said that you know an alternative is one giving aid but also letting in refugees who are affected by the violence in this country and recently the head of catholic relief services expressed uh, his dismay that the us has really slowed down how many refugees it's letting in from syria uh, in 2016 we let in 15,000 syrian refugees and this year we've only let in 11 and if we continue at that rate we will only have uh, 50 syrian refugees settled in the us in 2018 and this is, I mean, even even 15,000 is a tiny, tiny percentage of the 10 million Syrians who have been displaced by this war. This is the thing we should be, I mean, again, as you said, we're always ready to advocate to, to do something, right? But it's always in terms of military force. And this is a very clear thing that we can advocate for and push for um, that we are falling so far short on. It's, it's not laughable. It's, it's so sad. Yeah. Um, and Edward Clancy, the head of Aid to the Church in Need, has has called on people. He said if they feel that something needs to be done, then they should contact their congressman or senator to say that we have to make sure that these people have every opportunity for life because that's what it comes down to. So if you're concerned about this, um, contact your representative. All right. What's next, Zach? Seven Catholic peace activists were arrested and denied bond for their role in protesting at King's Naval Base uh, in Georgia. Uh, They were there protesting the installation of nuclear weapons. They showed up carrying hammers and baby bottles of their own blood, and they entered the base with uh, an indictment charging the U.S. government for crimes against peace. And so they were arrested for uh, trespassing, basically, and have been denied bond. And so there will be an official charging uh, in trial set for later date. But we brought this story to highlight uh, sort of the age of the protesters. Yeah. So the so those were seven Catholic protesters aged 55 to 78. Um, so, like, that's amazing. Good on them. Yeah. So, first of all, we should just say, like, <laughs> yeah. they're doing great work and prophetic work. Yeah. And work that they've been doing Their many of these lives. since the 60s civil rights movement, you mm-hmm. know, onward. Um, but... We've been having these conversations in the office and with our readers about where are the millennial activists. Uh, One of the O'Hare fellows here at America, Colleen Dully, wrote an article titled that, Where are the Millennial Activists? Um, Millennial Catholic Activists. Millennial Catholic Activists. Um, 
And her point was, it's not that millennials aren't, you know, out there like protesting. There are, you know, Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, millennials are there, but they're not doing this activism in an explicitly Catholic context. Um, so, you know, we've been debating, like, is this a problem? Is it is it better that there are Catholics in these movements representing, you know, the Catholic faith to the larger culture? Or would it be better if they were, you know, like their, their boomer forebears uh, protesting as Catholics? Right. And as you said, the, you know, a lot of people, I mean, at the March for Life, they're explicit. There are a lot of young people prominently featured as they're with their parishes and their youth groups mm-hmm. um, and their pro-life clubs at their Catholic schools. Um, and that's sort of the really the only prominent place where they're, you know, prote- doing civil disobedience under a Catholic banner. And I think this is a huge miss. Yeah. There are a few organizations that do a good job of mentoring yeah. young people, but there's a huge shortage of them. Yeah. And this is a huge opportunity for evangelization to young people. But also, it's more than that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm kind of skeptical that, like, you know, if the church had better protest movements, then young people would flock back to it. Um, That's fair. If young people want to protest, there are plenty of people doing that very effectively outside of the church. And the church would have a long way to go to catch up to have that be its main selling point. Well, that brings up a good point is that, like the church would benefit from having these young people in. This would be like a mutual evangelization of sorts, mm-hmm. right? So like young people would be able to feel confirmed in their Catholic identity. And also the church would be evangelized by living out its mission better with the energy of the young people. Yeah. So it's this dual thing that we're de- we're missing out on. Yeah. All right, listeners, are you a Catholic millennial? And are you, would you consider yourself an activist? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Do you wish the church was there? I think, I mean, maybe not. But I think the church should humbly present an option for young people who do want to do this. Speaking of evangelizing young people through unconventional means, <laughs> uh, some nuns in Poland have taken uh, YouTube by storm with a video of them boxing and doing other um, physical feats. <laughs> yes. So the Capuchin Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus are hoping to raise money for their orphanage. And so they made a... A pretty unique video. Yeah, no. So they are in the gym in full habits, punching, punching bags and each other, <laughs> <laughs> doing doing jump rope. Um, so they're raising money for their for their orphanage, but also trying to reach a a wider audience by you know showing showing the world that nuns can. Uh, Yes, slug. You know they're punching it out to the theme of uh, theme song from Rocky. Um, and Mother Superior did need to point out that we'd like to stress no one was knocked out or injured, which is impressive because I might have thrown out a shoulder if I were doing the types of moves that these nuns were doing. This is true. Uh, another video came out this week. Yes. Oh my God. Uh, if you need a good cry, you've probably already seen this, but uh, Pope Francis was visiting. Uh, a parish, a group of parishes on the outskirts of Rome who have been suffering from some like public housing crisis and uh, sort of part and parcel with a papal visit are uh, question and answers from uh, children. And so there were some typical uh, questions like, oh, what was it like when you first were elected? What did you think? But then there was uh, a little boy named Emmanuel who approached the microphone to ask Pope Francis's question and he starts to tremble a little bit and then he starts to cry. And then uh, the Monsignor who's tending the microphone sort of tries to encourage him and uh, Emmanuel just kind of starts saying, I can't, I can't, I can't um, while crying. And so Pope Francis just says, Emmanuel, come, come to me, come to me, whisper your question in my ear. Uh, at that point, you know, Emmanuel gets up to Pope Francis and he's sobbing at this point. And so Pope Francis just pulls him in, embraces him and, uh, 
and then they they have a conversation for a few minutes. They're whispering in each other's ear, um, and then Pope Francis asked Emmanuel if he could share his question with the whole audience, and Emmanuel said yes. Um, and Emmanuel wanted to know that uh, his his father had passed away recently. Um, and he himself was not a believer, but he had all four of his children baptized and that he was a good man. And he want, wanted to ask Pope Francis, is my dad in heaven? I'm going to cry again just listening to you tell this. <laughs> I know. And it's such a it's such a tough question. And it's one that only like children can be so blunt with. Yeah. I think a lot of that's such a relatable question that a lot of people want to know, like especially mm-hmm. if you've stayed in your faith. And you've seen loved ones fall away from it, and you're and you 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 want them to have a relationship with God uh, that they might not have had in this life, but you want to extend um, in eternal life. Um, and Pope Francis, you know, responded like, "Yeah, such a pastor." Yeah, he said he was good, um, and he said uh, if a man was able to make his children like that, like Emmanuel, so open and willing to share. Well, and he said, then he, it's true, he was a good man, and and he was praising Emmanuel. The, fir- the one of yeah. the first things he said was. W- I wish that we could all be as brave as Emmanuel to to know, be okay to cry when we have a a wound in our heart yeah. like that. Like if um, this man could have uh, made his son so brave like Emmanuel, then he must have been a good man. So yeah. first, just to affirm like this really positive image of masculinity that is some is not said often enough that it is okay mm-hmm. to cry and it's okay to cry in front of other people, right? And then the question that he gave such a good answer after that. Yeah. He said, God has a dad's heart. And with a dad who who was not a believer, but who baptized his children and gave them that bravura, I think means bravery. Bravery. (laughs) Do you think God would be able to leave him far from himself? And and then the children like all respond like, no. (laughs) And then he says, well, Emmanuel, there's your answer. Like, yeah, it's. So this is why we love Pope Francis to be able to sort of not only respond that way, but like see the person in front of him. It's yeah. a crying eight year old who's miss who misses his dad and not get bogged down with like, oh, like, what's the doctrine? Of, right. Well, of it was the yeah. universal salvation. Like, no, he he's a pastor. He he treated this this young boy as a pastor, as a father, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really beautiful. So I was watching this and I thought one question we could ask ourselves is if you had the chance to ask Pope Francis a question, what would you ask him? Why? Send us an email, jesuitical at americamedia.org. Today, joining us via Skype is Patrick Blanchfield. He is an associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research and a writer on issues like U.S. culture, violence, and politics. Welcome to Jesuitical, Patrick. Hey, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, we're very excited to have you. So once again, we've kind of seen the issue of gun control kind of thrust into the forefront of the media. Why do you think it's so difficult for us as a nation to talk about gun control? That's a phenomenal question and sort of like it's it's the recurring question in all these things. One thing I, I sort of stipulate at the outset is that a, a lot of times is is it is sort of pushing at the question of what is gun control sort of to know. When you say the words gun control, people start thinking, you know, they think Diane Feinstein on the floor of Congress holding up a gun. They think cops knocking on doors. They think the NRA. They, they basically it, it activates this whole well-worn series of cultural responses. Um, that have been pretty much played out and, and we all sort of know how we feel about these things and they activate all these interest groups and the like. Um, but 
that those sort of debates all, oftentimes exist independent from our thinking in a very sustained way about the problem of gun violence much more broadly, right? Um, which is not reducible to like what we mean by gun control, right? A lot of what people talk about gun control might, might involve like police violence, which, you know, is a type of gun violence. Right. Um, so th- th- it's sort of our difficulty thinking through like, what, what do we mean when we talk about gun control? What do we mean when we talk about gun violence? And why do those two conversations sometimes it's almost feel like they're proceeding like spinning plates or parallel to each other rather than connecting. And is is that because when we do have debates about gun control, it's often in response to mass shootings, and that's just a very small part of gun violence? Yeah, that's that's precisely right. And so the conversation becomes very narrowly about preventing what is essentially rampage violence in public spaces that impact certain sets of people, namely you know, college students, high school students, office workers, churchgoers, etc. But implicitly, that accepts a whole other category of violence or other different kinds of gun violence as being normal and acceptable. So we're talking about this um, more than a month after the last rampage shooting in Parkland, Florida. Um, and the fact that we're still talking about it and people in the media are still talking about it um, is is different. Usually we do have the well-worn script of mass shooting, one week of attention, moving on. You know, at the March for Our Lives, there were um, representatives from, you know, from, you know, inner city violence or, or suicide, that sort of thing. Do, do, do you see this as a different script? Yes, this moment is different. Uh, I do think, I mean, like, I, I don't, um, this, this moment is, 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 I think, very different and very, like, pregnant with possibility. I mean, my, my, I'll speak from like my personal perspective, right? Which is a little weird. Which is that um, I've been I've been writing about gun violence and mass shootings for about six years now, and for many years it had been this thing where something awful happens, my phone just explodes, um, and I, I, I'm doing interviews and I'm doing pieces and I'm, I'm constantly talking to people for about a week and a half, and then nothing, and then the same thing happens two weeks later, and then it ha- you know it, it's an odd these odd cycles of forgetting and then horror and then sort of retreat and exasperation and resignation. It's a very sad landscape. This time does feel different. Uh, And I think that has a lot to do with um, both the specific advocacy of the players involved, these kids. Uh, It has a lot to do with where they're coming from and who they are and what they represent. But it also has a lot to do with like sustained capacity building on the part of anti-gun violence organizations. And also I think there has been this kind of, I don't want to call it like a sweet spot, but it hit this very particular spot of the national conversation being just exhausted beyond exhaustion and then also just the white community feeling the brunt of this. And then they're springing very nobly into activist roles on that. Well, uh, you, you've written before that it's not super useful to think of uh, the gun debate in terms of conservative and liberal. Um, uh, why is it, why is that not super useful and what are better ways to think of it? If you take a view of American history that's more than just like a four or five year election cycle mm-hmm. uh, and look in the way in which guns and gun ownership have been a contested category, it becomes pretty clear that the issue is not the guns themselves. It's who's carrying them. In 1968, when the Black Panthers mounted the, the steps of the California Capitol carrying guns, Ronald Reagan launched what was, you know, the first what is recognizably modern gun control in response to that. Right. This is Ronald Reagan, governor of California, like saying the people that there's no reason for a reasonable citizen who wants to do anything good to be walking around with a loaded weapon. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the quote, but something like that. Right. So, so so at that point, I'm like, well, is, is this a a lot of the things that Reagan was suggesting, a lot of these sort of basic moral attitudes that well, no one should be needing to do this. Like you when you actually look at the context, right, these are not 
a lot of those phrases could be in the, the mouth of a contemporary liberal, right? But you know, there they were definitely being applied for fairly reactionary specific purposes. So, um, and then if you if you move closer to the present, right, it becomes clear that a lot of um, a lot of things that liberals will otherwise be, with good reason, be skeptical about, right? Or hopefully, will be skeptical about, like certain types of policing measures, um, certain types of security state growth, like you know, no fly lists and all this other stuff. Um, when it comes to guns, a lot of liberals will suddenly very closely resemble their conservative brethren and being like, well, you know, we need to give the cops more power. And so at that point, it doesn't seem to be just narrowly about the, about the guns. It appears to be about maintaining certain distributions of power uh, and recourse to violence. And, and that's still the case today, because I think a lot of people, you know, the political dynamics have shifted and it's thought of as very much. And this is true in like my own family and friends that if you vote Republican or if you're conservative, you generally are for carrying guns in the second amendment and if you don't then you want gun control whatever that means um and i feel like a lot of the times this has been my experience is that even when i wanted more gun control i hadn't thought super critically about these these questions of like what what types of control and what types of violence we're trying to stop um so is that still the case today i think that's that's absolutely the case right now uh, and it's also why like i'm really heartened by what i'm seeing from the parkland never again people and also mm-hmm. just by like the engagement of a lot of other people with them online and in, 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 in like the physical world uh insofar as that like you know it's still on like some of some of the survivors have certain specific demands uh, other survivors are asking for other things right so there are a lot of people whose response to this is like well we need more cops in schools right, right. that's not just an conservative and um, to their credit, a lot of Parkland survivors have said, no, we don't need more cops in schools. They're actually the opposite. We need the exact opposite. We need fewer school resource officers. Like the purpose of, of school resource officers, and I think here, not just what the Parkland kids are saying, but by books, by like a good book by Alex Vitale called The End of Policing that I highly recommend uh, that breaks down this. Like school resource officers basically exist to sho- shovel certain kids into a school to prison pipeline. Right. And to also, you know, deal with kids who are like, there's a non-trivial amount of children who act out in schools. They're disproportionately black and brown, who it's advantageous for school authorities to have put into disciplinary programs or into juvenile hall, both because they're no longer in the classroom, but also because that brings up school test scores. Right. Right. So there's a way in which, like, the, the issue of asking for gun control narrowly very easily can bleed into feeding all these other mechanisms of social injustice. Um, and What's making this moment so exciting is that even though there are a lot of very traditionalists having assault weapons ban, let's have more cops in schools voices, there are also a lot of voices being like, no, we just need to be the less violent culture as a whole, and we need to undo that structural violence in addition to just the narrow gun violence you see. Like, America's a very violent country. Like, we're super invested in monetizing death, uh, and we're really invested in in having a lot of cognitive distance about this, yeah. right? You hear like, even Democratic politicians will be like, well, we can't have these weapons of war on our streets. Like, well, well, whose streets do they belong on, right? It, it, it is, like, a lot of people want to have their, their, their um, a lot of the gun control stuff that has previously failed, I think been very like immoral, and I, I feel comfortable using this language with you all, um, has been stuff that's been like, they said, well, can we just enforce harder at home while still keeping our role as the world's biggest arms manufacturer in a military empire. And, you know, that's... It's morally misbegotten and it's not going to work. I'll never remember when I I realized that, like, when we banned assault weapons, that Mexico's murder rate Mm -hmm. shot up, right? And it's like, whose lives do we consider (laughs) valuable? 
right, in this right. country. Yeah. I, and I think one of the interesting things about this debate is that from both sides, it always kind of attracts this like very theological reactions. And what do you think about Patrick? Is there th- sort of this tendency to the- theologize like found bo- on both sides of the argument? Well, so I, um, so this actually, this is very, this is very important to me. It's a, I'm a Jesuit education. This is very important to me. Like, and definitely there's an obvious theology when you hear a lot of people specifically on the right wing talk about, you know, this is an, this is a tragedy. We just need to pray. Mm-hmm. Right. That there was, which is a kind of like a non-reaction, right. It depoliticizes this stuff. It, um, it, it makes it, it you, at the point at which like you have senators with a truly you know, like an A plus NRA rating who have actively worked to liberalize gun access being like, there's nothing we can do. All we can do is pray. Like this is, it's, it's, it's a bad parody of the book of Job, right? Like it's, 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 it, 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 there's a way in which like, I'm not knocking prayer as an activity, but prayer from the powerful who have made the situation worse is terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do have a question about that because I, I agree that prayer is clearly not the like only appropriate response. Um, but do you think it's helpful when people like, like denounce other people for praying? Like, is that going to help us get anything done? Because well, this, it, that has become another predictable script where they people give their thoughts and prayers, and then people on the other side yell at them for giving their thoughts and prayers. Yeah, this that that, that gets at one of those like ideas, like these pathways or like this ruts in the road, right? Like, if, if, if someone says prayer, then there's going to be some. I don't want to. I can't curse, can I? There's going to be some, <laughs> some unfortunate person who's like, "Well, prayer is bad. You're an idiot." Like yeah. it, 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 all these, we, we've. The sheer repetition with which we've done this has produced this entire ecology of postures and stupid responses and bad positions. And it just, it just you know, it's a real petri dish for this. So, yeah, no, of course, prayer is great. I like I encourage pray if you want. Like, um, but like has your Jesuit education, uh, you know, shaped at all how how you think about responding to to events like this? Um, I guess it has in some ways. I mean, actually, uh, here, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in one second. Let me okay, just give you yeah. another. Because 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 it's not the the theological stuff isn't just on the right where it's a lot like essentially um it's essentially bullshit theology right like mm-hmm. I think we understand a lot of suffering in this country relative to a template of sacrifice and relative to um these very uh sophisticated but rarely articulated logics of moral desert and justified suffering so for example the idea that you know, the, the kids in Sandy Hook are little angels, uh, but the young black men who were killed on the streets in Ferguson are, you know, they're, they, yeah, they're thugs, as opposed to simply having a very clear moral standard, which is that no one deserves to get shot ever. Right? So there's a sort of moral filtering that happens where it's like we start choosing these particular people who like, these people don't deserve to suffer, but these people, their suffering is acceptable, right? So that's a theological dimension there, too. But there's also this the way in which sacrifice plays into it, where it's like the logic of sacrifice is very frequently a logic of atonement, right? This is a this is more just a Christological thing. It's it's it's, it's a broader Judeo-Christian thing. But the idea that like somehow sacrifice is purgative, like it, there's some and this is present on the right, where people are like well, the loss of all these kids. It's the price we pay for freedom. This is a former NRA vice president who coined this line in, in testimony before Congress. Someone asked him, well, what do you feel about people like criminals having access to guns who shouldn't or the mentally ill killing people? His response was, well, that's the price we pay for freedom, verbatim. Uh, now, of course, that we is you push and be like, well, no, it's not we. It's some of us who are not necessarily the people who are saying that. Right. Stuff. But also the idea that like 
there's some sort of redemptive principle at play here. And you see that on the left as well? It, it, I see it sometimes in terms of our, our emotional desires, right? Like our desire to like have some sort of cathartic response, right? Something, this, this massacre has happened, we have to do something. And the idea there is, is we, and it's not, it's not, I'm not judging it per se, right? That impulse is right. But, the, but, the, but there's a hope that somehow we could take some action that could make us feel as morally vindicated as the tragedy that we just witnessed makes us feel implicated and terrible. Hmm. I, I, I'll leave it to the theologians to talk about the metaphysical logic of like uh, of sacrifice in, in, in a theological sense. But like, I have a very hard time imagining any political action that could redeem the mass murder of 20 children. Yeah. Right. And I have a hard idea also of like, I, I question any, I, I have my own moral qualms with thinking that there's anything that making it about my feelings in the first place, about our feelings in the first place. Right. The idea that some of these, these kids who were murdered are going to, we're going to make good their sacrifice by, by what? Right. It, by yelling very, at our family members mm-hmm. or owning, owning the conservatives or owning the libs or doing all these things that like you just want to jump into a cesspool because like that's what you're faced with right like with all this suffering mm-hmm. i don't know yeah. i think that's a super relatable <laughs> yeah what what is a what I, I assume you don't think there should be no response so what is what what yeah. what do you want to see going forward when we have these debates and when we try to implement some sort of response. I'm getting this. I'm getting this question a lot more now, and I like. I, I like getting it. It's a good thing people are thinking about this, right? Like, but for the first thing I'd say is just. It's just really. I want us to to have a. It's not a non-response, but I want us to have a reflective response. Where when we see one specimen act of violence that's like headline grabbing, to stop and be like, how is this? How does this example of violence reflect broader? systems of violence that sounds a lot like a uh, genuine thought and prayer <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so so there's that like just being like how do we like like maybe maybe america maybe when we talk about school shooting we should be talking about making like if we're worried about school shootings maybe we should be a little more worried about you know about making america less violent overall like being not maybe we should question you know i'm not using the we as catholics because i'm not one but like maybe folks of, of good of goodwill and good intention might want to I want to question their their desire to, to to exist in a military superpower, or maybe it's funny how the country that also has the most guns in private hands also has the most, both per capita and in total, also has per capita and in total the most people in prison, right? Maybe these are related problems, right? So that's something. So, so something that's other than a purely knee jerk, let's make ourselves feel better by pissing off the NRA or pissing off our red state uncle, but saying like, what's what's a, what's the thing that we? How can we deal with? Um, how can we have a holistic, I hate to use the phrase seamless garment, but a more sort of like cohesive vision of, of human life and its dignity that we can protect. And in terms of other stuff, like in terms of concrete policy stuff, like, yeah, like we need to, I, I, my friend Jennifer Carlson, whose work is brilliant, she's a sociologist in Toronto and now in Arizona, uh, has a book called Citizen Protectors that I strongly recommend. Um, but her, her, her conclusion in that book is that we need to make guns less socially relevant. Gun, gun violence is the tip of the iceberg of broader systems of violence and oppression and people feeling, you know, much in the same way as like suicide. Two thirds of our gun deaths are going to be suicides in any given year. Right? It's 20,000 people. Um, like that's an act of, I think in most cases, of despair and should be preventable and people should not, people should not feel the need to do this. Right. And so maybe we should intervene rather than, you know, let's just take away the guns. So of course we should, we, we, we should have those conversations, but to also intervene on the systems of suffering and misery that make this type of outcomes 
practicable. Real quick, if you could give like, if you see the, the good, bad, and like worse, <laughs> what's going to happen? A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece about going to a gun show in Georgia. And I got a, and I was like, what are people so, yeah, I got, the affect I felt there most was fear, right? Mm-hmm. And I ended this piece being like, what are people most afraid of? And a couple weeks later, a couple months later, I got a letter sent to me by a, um, a Catholic worker affiliated association called the Open Door Community that had been working with death row inmates and people who were working lifers. And they, uh, they had printed out a copy of the article and distributed it to some of their, some people that they work with inside. Uh, and a man who was serving um, life for a, uh, a really horrific home invasion and double murder, uh, and who had since rediscovered his Catholicism in prison, read it and wrote back to me. And the line, like, is, is he quoted Augustine to me, actually. It was sort of the amazing thing. Uh, and it was just like, well, you know, I did what I did. I'm not asking for excuses, but um, I, everything I did was done out of a sense of impotence and fear. Uh, and the line specifically that he quoted to me was that you cannot, you, you, you cannot love with fear in your heart. Um, and I still think about, I had this letter again, written by, he killed a, a toddler, uh, but, but getting this, but, but having his own story of like abuse and, and vulnerability and then going on to kill other people and being like the, the root of all this was fear. Right. So if you want like a, like a philosophical, theological thing, we need to think about fear, right. And what we're afraid of in terms of good, bad, worse, good is we get, we get serious about not just asking for gun control, but just about building down how violent we are as a society. We disarm our police, we disarm ourselves, and we eliminate the structural conditions that make people want to hurt each other and themselves. Yeah. Um, bad is we maintain what we're doing consistently, right? Just a basic status quo. We continue to, 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 we continue to enrich arms companies, we continue to grow the police, uh, and we continue to basically accept the fact that the same amount of people that die of Car accidents and drug overdoses are about the same that we lose to guns and everything near. That's bad. Worse is um, we go full on, we go even more into the security state policing. We put police everywhere. Our understanding of gun control is just putting people in prison uh, and we just militarize further. And I think we actually are at a point where all three of those scenarios are equally possible. And I really hope we go for the first. So if, if, I, if I were a praying man, I'd pray that that, that, that gets it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, we've got one more question for you. If you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? As a non-praying man. As a non-praying <laughs> man. Who would you make a saint? For others to pray to. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Do you say Jesus? <laughs> I don't think he needs your help. <laughs> I can think of clerics I know who've done a lot of work on gun violence and who I would, I, you know, they're still living, so I wouldn't want to canonize them out of time. I think more about the martyrs. And we have a lot of them. Uh, Trayvon Martin. I, I, I can't stop thinking about Trayvon Martin. It's been years I can't. Um, I think that's, I think that there's a, there's a whole roster of, of, of names that we've, we've known for, for headlines are just people who have, have been forgotten and this daily churn and I, I don't i don't know who to elevate as a, a specimen example of a person who i would write a hagiography about or look to for divine intercession but I, I think that thinking about this constant toll that's not reducible to any logic of of um of of, of redemption but is really about witnessing and about a call to action i would think about that mm-hmm. 
Amen. I mean, yeah. m- martyrs and companions. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of instances in the church where like mm-hmm. y- names just get lost, but mm-hmm. you still want to elevate their examples. So, amen. Yeah. So let's canonize martyrs of gun violence. Well, yeah. Well, this has been really great. So, yeah, and, thank and you so much. Thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep writing. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now it's time for some listener feedback. We got a couple of really nice emails this week. One from uh, Jake Shemtob, a graduate of Fairfield University, who recently was going on a road trip and uh, was introduced to Jesuitical and then binged our entire library, which I highly encourage to anyone who's just finding us. Only after you've done a solid bout of country music with the windows down. <laughs> that is official road trip music. And All right. Maybe then after that, <laughs> okay. go to Jesuitical. We also had an email from Kara Marie who wrote that she's listening to Jesuitical while studying for finals. And it's that time of the year. Is it um, really? Oh yeah, my gosh. it's final season. So if you're a student out there and you're studying for finals, you're getting ready for them, you can do it. Uh, may you have many consolations out yes. of, come out of your exams. <laughs> and when you need a study break, Jesuitical is here for you. Uh, uh, one more one more email was from uh Clarice Wilson, who wrote uh, that as an expat sort of living abroad in looking at our current political climate, uh, she wanted to know like how she could uh, do something for the refugee situation and the migrant situation. She was really moved by our discussion of the migrant caravan mm. um, last week um, and feels sort of uh, powerless. I guess I, one thing I would say is um, we had a really great interview with uh, the Director of Advocacy and Operations, I think was her title, of Jesuit Refugee Services, Julia McPherson, um, back in January. That episode is called, aptly, One Thing You Can Do to Support Migrants and Refugees. So give that a listen and I think keep asking these questions. Mm-hmm. And finally, we want to give a shout out to our new patrons, Mary Quinlan, Michelle frankel Donay, Anna Mahoney. Bob Gorman, Christy Steinman, and a special shout out to VIP Verity Caruso. Thank you all so much for supporting Judge Whitaker. Yeah, that means a, it really a lot. It keeps the lights on here. Mm-hmm. The bright blue lights. <laughs> yes. Um, and yes, one more reminder. Birthday week here at America. And so check us out at patreon.com slash America Media. It is proper to give one a gift on one's birthday. <laughs> Uh, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? So I've got a desolation, and it's related to, I guess, my professional life and my work life, uh, you know, sort of outside of Jesuitical. Uh, I feel like I'm being given, being given a lot of tasks that don't necessarily, uh, that, that are problems that don't have a lot of answers to, um, that no one really has the answers right now. Um, I don't know the answers and there is this, I I feel like I'm listening to the evil spirit a lot right now, which is also telling me you're never going to figure it out. You can't, and you can't figure it out. And the tempting thing is to think all three of those are true. When only, and the truth is one of them is, I don't know. (laughs) And I have to be honest with that. 
and to be able to see the whole situation. But the temptation is to listen to the evil spirit say, you're, you're not going to be able to, and you never will. Um, it's sort of telling, I, I, I'm hearing a lot of you're plateauing, you're not going to do any better. Um, and that, that feels horrible. That sucks. And I know that's not true, but it really blocks my ability to be grateful for the work that I do and for the good, for like the good we're doing here. Uh, and to be able to like actually get somewhere where I can solve some of these harder problems. Yeah. Um, so that, I'm sure you can solve the crisis of modern journalism in the age of the internet, Zach. I know. <laughs> Staring at <laughs> analytics. <laughs> just read more articles. If you're listening to this, read all of our articles just, a lot no, more. Just, just click on them. Just click on just them. Click you don't even them. have to read. Yeah. Just leave it open. <laughs> That'd just be kidding. Great. Really, read them. <laughs> We've created a lot of great content outside of podcast. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that's that's my desolation. Ashley, what do you got? Uh, I have a consolation, which is also kind of work-related. Um, so at the beginning of the year, I looked ahead to my March and April and saw this like never-ending streak of public speaking events <laughs> that I had I had signed myself up for, kind of like taking a leap of faith that I would get over my fear of public speaking and just like do it. So... I can now, I'm almost at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> I have a parish talk on Friday, <laughs> so I still have to prepare for that. But I can now look back at like a couple of live shows, um, uh, a presentation I gave at a Jesuit high school, um, and see that I survived. <laughs> um, if, you can, if you can speak in front of high school boys. Yeah, that's... it was terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah, so where I see God in this is, is one in like the trust I had going into it, um, that it was scary but worth it because it is something I, I was doing things I care about. Um, but also in, in the strength and getting through it. Like, I did not do it alone because I couldn't have done it alone. Um, so I, I see God in propping me up through that and... Getting over those fears. Getting over the fear yeah. <laughs> of public speaking, which I clearly still have. <laughs> I don't but see it. thanks. Thanks, Zach. <laughs> All right. Get us out of here, Ashley. I will. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sandrup SJ. Engineering and design by Angelo Jesus Canta. Adverbs provided by Eloise Blondio. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show and please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Um, we didn't get any last week. Yeah. And it makes us very sad. Come on. <laughs> just just one or ten. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great. We'll give it's you a shout birthday. out. <laughs> and send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We will see you next week. <laughs>